There's a word from the Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading with verse 3. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation. That third verse of the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to what God's Word says. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Amen. I want to preach about getting marriage right. Getting marriage right. Halle Berry, after her second divorce, she says that I'm going to have to redefine marriage. And then Halle Berry said after her third divorce, how difficult divorce is, how painful each one of her divorces were. She said, nobody gets married expecting to get divorced. She said when she got married, she thought she was going to have a fairy tale ending that she would live happily ever after. And it didn't happen. And she said in each one of those cases, she was in so much pain and the difficulty of making it through each of those, those seasons. And Halle Berry is not by herself. By now, we all know that half of the marriages, 50% of the marriages in the United States end in divorce. So, so many of us know what that pain feels like. We know what that hurt feels like. We know that struggle. We know that difficulty. And some of us, like Halle Berry, have decided we're going to redefine what marriage is. Now, here's the issue with that. God has already defined marriage. Now, now what does that sound like? After God defines marriage, then you and I are going to come behind God and then redefine what God already defined. And that doesn't make any sense. So what we need to learn how to do is to refine our marriages so that they line up with what God defines as marriage. Here in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, as usual, has a crowd around him, a multitude of people. And many of them are sick and diseased and disordered. And Jesus is healing them. He is the great physician. Grandma said he's a doctor that's never lost a patient. And as he's healing all these people, here come the Pharisees interrupting him. The Pharisees was a religious sect, a religious group of people. And they thought that they walked more closely to the commandments in God's word than anybody else, more closely to the scriptures than anybody else. Matter of fact, after all the commandments we have in the Bible, the Pharisees added more commandments onto themselves. And they weren't just religious leaders, they were the political leaders, they were the social leaders. They, they were the economic leaders in Israel in the first century. They interrupt Jesus healing the sick. And they walk up on him with the intent to trap 
Jesus. They're trying to trick Jesus because Jesus has a crowd. Where did these crowds come from? These are the same people that used to follow the Pharisees. Now they're following Jesus. They used to be influenced by the Pharisees. Now they're being influenced by Jesus. The Pharisees trying to get their crowd back. So they're trying to trap Jesus. They, this trickeration for Jesus. And so they try to pull Jesus into this controversy that has been going on in Israel for thousands of years. This, this controversial theology about divorce. And they're not asking to seek revelation from Jesus because the Pharisees believe they already know. They already had, they already knew Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. Moses said, don't get a divorce if you do write a, 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 a writ of divorcement, a notice of divorcement, and only get divorced for indecency. Here is the argument in the first century about divorce. It's really two schools of thought at, at the extreme anyway. One extreme was when they heard Moses say, the only way you can get a, only reason to get a divorce is because of indecency. That, that one group believed that is sexual indecency. The only reason you get a divorce is because of adultery. The other extreme was they believed indecency was indecency in any area, not just sexual, not just in sexual area, any area. So if somebody uh, was irreverent or somebody didn't in marriage didn't respect you or the woman didn't have her head covered in public or she burned dinner, that's indecency. So you can divorce somebody for any and every reason. Two extremes. The Pharisees trying to trap Jesus pulls him into this controversy. Do you believe, they asked Jesus, do you believe that a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds with truth. Jesus doesn't get caught... Y'all, you and I don't have to get caught up in all of these controversial statements and things that are going. The truth will stand on its own. Jesus said, in the beginning, it was not like this. He just gave the truth. You should know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Y'all, truth crushed to the ground will rise again. Just put the truth out there. And so Jesus is putting the truth out there because Jesus is overcoming their traps with truth. Jesus is overcoming trickeration with truth. The question they asked him, is it okay, is it all right for a man to get a divorce for any and ever, every reason? Jesus responds by talking about marriage. The question is about divorce. The answer is about marriage. They want to talk about what's wrong with divorce. Jesus said, no, let's talk about what's right with marriage. Because if you get marriage right, you don't have to worry about getting divorced wrong. Are y'all following this? And so Jesus says, he says, it was not like this in the beginning. Y'all want to argue about divorce. It wasn't like this in the beginning. It, in the beginning, God created them male and female. And for this reason, a man would leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife to become one. He starts talking about what is right in marriage. He said, our issue is we don't understand what real marriage is. So he uses something called the law of first mention, the law of first mention, that if you want to know God's design for something, you go back in Scripture to God's first mention of it. And the first mention of it is God's design for it. They start asking about divorce. Jesus talked about marriage, and he went back to the first time God started talking about it. 
because that's God's design for marriage. So if you want to get marriage right, go back to God's divine design. Go back to when God defined marriage. It's in the scripture. Jesus goes to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's what real marriage is. Real marriage is leaving, cleaving, and weaving. So you talk about marriage is when a man leaves not just his mother and father, but he leaves any previous relationship that will get in the way of him cleaving to his wife. So it's not just mother and father, it's any relate. You leave any relationship so that now the most important person in your life is your husband. The most important person in your life is your wife. Because you cannot cleave to your spouse properly if you won't leave the one you used to be with. Well, Pastor, we broke up four years ago. Yeah, physically you broke up. But psychologically, y'all ain't helping me preach. <laughs> psychologically and emotionally, you still tie. So Jesus said, when you get marriage right, it's when you leave. And then you have to cleave. Out of the Hebrew, cleave means to stick to like glue. So when you get married, you arguing over divorce. No, real marriage is sticking to like glue. Y'all heard the term tie the knot? That term, tie the knot, actually, in ancient times, there used to be cultures that when somebody got married, they would literally tie the couple's hands with a rope or with cloths to show the commitment of the level of the relationship. So they would tie them together with their hands and with their wrists. That's what Jesus is talking about. You have to leave previous relationships Please stick to light glue, tie the knot to show your level of commitment in the situation, and then weave the two becoming one. Two becoming one is a sexual reference. Because when a husband and wife makes love, the two become one. So you're talking about this, this weaving, the two becoming one. That's why divorce is so difficult. Listen to what, listen to what Adam said. He said about his wife. She is bone of my bone. She is flesh of my flesh. The two have become one. That's why, Halle Berry, it's so difficult to get a divorce because you're literally tearing yourself apart. So Jesus says in, in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no one separate because you're literally tearing yourself apart. That's why it's so painful. So we got to get marriage right. When Adam was single, here's what God said about Adam. God said, this is, Jesus said, in the beginning was not like this. So in, in the beginning, the first time God does marriage, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make him a help meet. That's King James Version, a help meet. New International Version. I'm going to make him a suitable helper. What that means is God says, I'm going to make him a mate that fits. Because when your mate fits, then your marriage can function. Most marriages are not functioning because you chose a mate that doesn't fit. So God says, it's not good for men to be alone. I'm going to make him a mate that fit. Now, when God says this, he's not talking about every man everywhere. It's not good for man to be alone. 
he's not talking about every man ever because some women that's the verse they use to pressure their man into getting married so they grab a big pulpit bible hit their man upside the head the lord said you need to be married because it's not good for a man to be alone no that's it's not talking about every man everywhere fundamentally it's talking about adam because his name means the man it's not good for the man to be alone talking about adam and that's the interpretation of, even if you expand it for application, the interpretation is about the man, Adam. If you expand it for application, you want to apply it somewhere else, it's not every man everywhere. It's not good for this kind of man to be alone. Well, what kind of man are you talking about? Adam was the kind of man that was in the image of God. He was a reflection of who God... When you saw Adam, you knew there was a God somewhere. Adam was a man that had the breath of God in him. The God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and, and he became a, a living soul. So he had the Spirit of God living in him. The only way to get the Spirit of God in you now is to believe Jesus died on the cross, to believe God raised it from the dead. When you receive him by faith, then the, bre the breath of God, the Spirit of God gets in you. What kind of man is it? A man who reflects God, a man with the Spirit of God in him. And then God put the man in the garden and told him to work, farm the garden. So he's working with his muscle. Name the animals. He's working with his mind. So he's a reflection of God. He's got the Spirit of God in him and a, and a work ethic. It's not good for this kind of man to be alone if they reflect God, Spirit of God in them, and a work ethic. But y'all, how many of you know some men need to be left alone? They don't remind you of God. They ain't got no Holy Spirit in them. They ain't got no work ethic. That brother need to be left alone. So when God says this man should not, this man, he'll need to be, it's not good for him to be alone. So I'm going to make him a mate that fits. God takes Eve. God takes Adam. God takes Adam, puts him in a deep sleep. I'm still in Genesis 2. Back in, Jesus said, let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to show you what marriage is all about. He put Adam in a deep sleep, opened him up, took a rib out, closed that place back up, took that rib, made Eve, made his wife, brought her unto him. Wait a minute. Put him in a deep sleep, opened him up, took a rib out, closed it back up. That sounds like major surgery to me. Deep sleep open up, take something out, close them back up. That don't sound like major surgery to you because that's what marriage is. Marriage is major surgery. But we keep trying to treat it like an outpatient procedure. That's why we keep getting in and out of them. Marriage ain't no outpatient procedure. Let's get marriage right. Major, marriage is major surgery where you rest in God. And you let God open you, you open up to God so that God can take something out of you in order to make your spouse what you need them to be for you. Do I have a witness in here? So he, he's in a deep sleep. And, well, and, and let me say this too. When, when God went to open him up, take out a rib, God only took out one rib. Because God was only going to make one woman. Because that's all one man needs. I heard a brother, you know, for whatever reason, I guess because I'm 
I, I lived, I grew up in Arlington Woods in Indianapolis. So people, you see pastor, you for real, man, you down. You, you, you know, some pastors are fake, you down. So I'm going to be real with you, pastor. I, I, I need more than one woman in my life. I said, okay, well, well, help me understand that, that you need more than one woman. I said, yeah, well, I need a woman that can think with me. I need somebody with some intelligence. I need another woman that has a social expression out in the community that's, that's woke. I need another woman that can enjoy sports. I love basketball and football. I need somebody to go to the games with me, hang out with me. I need another woman that can shoot pool. I, need, I said, wait, 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 wait. You don't need six different women. You need one woman that can do six different things. Somebody ought to be saying amen to this. He took out one rib because I'm going to make one woman because that's all one man needs. Y'all, the rib cage, the ribs protect the heart. And the reason why some of us keep getting heartbroken is because we got too many ribs out there. We got a rib in Indianapolis. We got a rib in Fishers. We got a rib in Carmel. We got a rib in Louisville. We got a rib in Chicago. We got a rib in Cincinnati. That's too many ribs out there. No wonder you're heartbroken. All one man needs is one woman. So Adam is in deep sleep. God is over here shaping and making Eve after his image. It's not just the man made in the image of God. The woman is made in the image of God. And God is shaping and making her. And as he's shaping and making Eve after his end, the fingerprints of God are all over this sister. And the whole while, Adam is asleep. Why is Adam sleeping while God is making Eve? Because God doesn't want the man to have anything to do with the making of a woman. And the reason he didn't want the man to have anything to do with the making of a woman because this man don't know what a real woman looks like. This man ain't never seen a real woman. This man's image of a real woman, he ain't seen one. Y'all, up until now, all Adam has seen were lions and tigers and bears. That's all he's seen. So God says, since you don't know what a real woman looks like, you stay over here sleep. I'll be over here shaping and making Eve into the woman she's supposed to be. And to tell you the truth, a lot of, a lot of men in the United States don't know what a real woman looks like. That's why he's always trying to reshape you into something God never intended for you to be. But he, he don't know what a real woman looks like. Where, where does he get his image of a woman from? TV? The theater? Music videos, pornography, and you're going to wake him up and ask him to help shape you? No, let Adam sleep and let God work on you. Get in the hand of God and trust God knows how to make a woman. Somebody ought to be saying amen to this. And he shaped that he made her and he brought her unto him. They're asking about divorce. Jesus says, no, understand what real marriage is. And once you get real marriage, then you'll be able to work through it. But the Pharisees, Pharisees didn't care about marriage or divorce. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to pull him into this controversy. Well, then because they, they wouldn't let it go. They said, okay, well, if, if you're going to put it like that, what God joined together, let no one separate, then help us to understand why did Moses say, Deuteronomy 24 and 1, I told you how they know the scripture. Why did Moses say that a man can get a divorce, but he needs to write a notice, a writ of divorce. 
and because of indecency. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, it wasn't like that in the beginning. He's taking us back to the Bible so that we can understand what relationship and marriage is all about. It wasn't like that in the beginning. He said the only reason Moses said to write a notice of divorce is because of the hardness of the human heart. He said that was not the design of God. That was the hardness of, because y'all, in the, in the day of Moses and when Jesus walked on earth in the flesh, women couldn't get divorced from their husband. Women were treated as less than human. They couldn't divorce their husband, but the husband could divorce his wife. But these brothers were so hard-hearted, they wouldn't even divorce them. They would just put them out. And when they put them out, no other man could get with them. No other man could marry them because they were still married. People wouldn't hire them because of sexism. They treated them like less than proper. Now they're dealing with poverty. Now they turn into prostitution. So Moses said, y'all heart so hard. At least write the woman a notice of, of divorce so we can protect these women. That's what that was all about. And, 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 and really what Moses was doing was giving a concession for divorce, not a commandment for divorce. So when Jesus says that, no, you can't get a divorce for any and every reason, you, you, can, get, if you can get a divorce for adultery. The word actually is pornea, where we get our word pornography from, sexual immorality for, for idolatry, for, I mean, for uh, fornication, for adultery. And, but it's not a commandment to get a divorce because of adultery. It's a concession. Because I have, unfortunately, I've seen too many of these, but I have seen couples, married couples, that were able to overcome adultery and then go on to have a marriage that was healthy and brings honor and glory to God and his kingdom. So it's not a commandment, it's, it's a concession. Just like in 1 um, Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul was talking about marriage and divorce, and he says, now if, if your spouse is willing to stay with you, then stay with them. But then he went on to say, but if they abandon you, if they, if they just leave and won't come back, you don't have to try to stay married to that. They gone. So it's not just adultery, but it's abandonment. But it's not a command. It's a concession. Are y'all understanding this? So you got adultery. You got abandonment. That's Jesus and Paul. Now, this ain't Jesus, ain't Paul. This is Jeffrey Johnson. I'm throwing abuse in there. Not as a command, but as a concession. Because if you go into the doctor every other week because you got a black eye, a broken arm, and a busted lip, supposedly from the person that loves you, you're going to spend the rest of your life with. I'm not giving you a command to get a divorce, but that is a concession for a divorce. So, so hit, we, we got to deal with the dilemma of divorce. We got to learn how to work through this thing, right? And the way you're going to work through it, but let, let me do it like this. Let me do it like this. In, in Atlanta, Georgia, there was, this just happened a couple weeks ago. There was a, a woman in the middle of the night. She wakes up in her own bed in her own house. And there is a wild African cat in her bed. Indigenous, she said indigenous to Africa. A wild, Af that's the image, that's the real cat right there. Indigenous to Africa in her bed, in her house. She said it was inches from her face. So she, she, she eases out of the bed and she gets out the door, closes the door. And the cat's still in there. Her husband comes into the house and he opens the back door to the, to the bedroom and he's able to get the, the wild African cat out of the bedroom. They call the authorities. There's a wild African cat loose in our neighborhood. We got children in this neighborhood. We got seniors in this neighborhood. Y'all got, so they come looking for this wild African cat because 
the woman is, is trying to help the authorities to know, and us, you can't domesticate every cat. That, that's, so she's like, we got children around here that could get hurt because this is a cat they can't be domesticated. The authorities asked her, how'd you get this cat in your house? How'd this cat get in your bed? She said, because when my husband left to, with our dog so the dog can relieve himself, he left the door open. And when he left the door open, that's when this wild African cat, this cat ended up in my house and in my bed, because we didn't close the door. I think y'all know where I'm going with this. Every cat can't be domesticated. You got to close the door on some of these cats so that you can get what God has intended for you. So how we deal with divorce. Here's how you deal with divorce. One way you're going to deal with it is accept the forgiveness that God has for you. And I, I know that people will beat you down because you got a divorce and you're supposed to love God. You're supposed to be a Christian. You got no God forgives. I know in, in Malachi it says God hates divorce. Jesus said don't separate what God has joined together. I get all of that. But when you ask God to forgive you, God forgives you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Some of us, it was seven, eight years ago you got a divorce and you're still tripping. You still can't move on because you won't accept the forgiveness that God has for you. So you got to accept. And then don't just accept God's forgiveness. You're going to deal with your divorce then you have to absolutely forgive yourself. The issue for some of us is not that God has not forgiven us, is we haven't forgiven ourselves. Then you got a divorce eight years ago, and you're still beating yourself down. You're still hard on yourself. Because I did something I shouldn't have did. I went somewhere I shouldn't have done it. This should, I should have hung on in there. This, I should have trusted God more. No, it's over. Forgive yourself. In the book of Hebrews, it says, and God will, God will remember their sin no more. Now, y'all, if God has forgotten your sin, why you keep bringing it up? If God let it go, you need to let it go. Forgive yourself. Okay, here it is. You're going you're gonna to make sure you accept the forgiveness of God. You're going to absolutely forgive yourself. Then here's the hard one. You're actually going to forgive your ex. Okay, four amens on this side over here. Praise the Lord. Because it's not just getting forgiveness for yourself. You got to forgive your ex. And I, I know they did some stuff they shouldn't have done. I'm not trying to belittle that. I know they brought somebody in that they shouldn't have brought in. I, I understand they maltreated you. They mistreated you. They didn't act like a husband or wife. I, I, I get all of that. That they stood at the altar and said, I do, and then they didn't. They said, I will, and then they wouldn't. And I understand you're still mad after seven years, but you, you got to forgive them. And I, I know what you're thinking. Well, if I forgive them, that frees them after all that hell they took me through. They messed me around, and you're telling me to forgive them. That frees them. And it does free them, but it doesn't just free them. It frees you. If you're still tripping of somebody that's been out of your life for eight years? Y'all ain't helping me preach this. Something ain't quite right with this. You got to forgive them. Every week you telling somebody, see, that ain't right when, I, when he was in my life. He was there and there. Don't nobody want to hear that for eight years? Let that stuff go. You're putting, you can't move on 
to embrace a healthy relationship in the present if you're still tripping off a messy relationship from the past. You got you to forgive them to free yourself. And you know what's so bad about it? He ain't thinking nothing about you. He's remarried. They've been married five years. They got three kids. You talk about him every week. Your name never comes up over there. You got to let it go so you can walk in to what God has for you right now. Preach, Jeffrey Johnson. I am preaching. I, I got to rush through this. Let me show y'all something. I want to show y'all the flow of the text. It, it, it starts off with, you didn't get marriage right. That's why you have a broken home. And then right after that, verse 13 says, and people begin to bring children to Jesus so he could lay hands on them and bless them. You got to understand, there's a context, there's a flow in Scripture. You mess marriage up, it's a broken home. So now you got to bring your children to Jesus because whenever there is a broken home and a broken marriage, there are broken children. And those children, we got to get them into the hands. Of, and I know children are resilient. Children can bounce back. But, y'all, I have seen it through the years. I've seen children that, that come out of these broken homes. They, they, they have a lot of anger. Uh, they have a lot of grief, depression, behavioral issues. Some of them have guilt because they think it's their fault that their mother and father didn't make it. And we can help with some of that. It, it's not your fault. We both love you. It's just that we couldn't make it with each other. And, and to keep your children out of the middle of it, don't make your child have to choose between loving my mother or loving my father because you're breaking that. That child is broken and messed up. And you're an adult and you're mature and you can think through it and get help. And your family support system and friends, your child can't get through all of that. That's why they're bringing them to Jesus because Jesus knows how to bless a broken child. I know you're concerned. What's going to happen with my children now? They're used to a two-parent household. Now they, they got one parent. They're used to their father being there every day. Now he's there every other weekend and on holidays. They're used to a family that had financial capability. Now they're in poverty. They're trying to come to grips with this new family arrangement. That's why it said they were bringing them to Jesus so that Jesus could lay hands on them because Jesus knows how to bless a broken child. I wanted to bring this up because some of us are taking our children everywhere but to Jesus. We take our children everywhere. Then when it's time to come to Christ and come to church and come to the kingdom, we got one excuse after another. Don't you know your child trying to deal with brokenness? If it's not in the home, it's in the, it's in the community. It's a broken justice system. It's broken in how people relate in America. They're dealing with all of this broken, broken terms of poverty. Y'all, but I'm telling you right now, I serve a God that knows what to do with broken children. Y'all, there's power when you let Jesus touch you. All through Scripture, there was, there was a man that was blind, and then Jesus touched his eyes, and the man started seeing. There was a man that was deaf. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ear. The man started hearing. There was a man that couldn't even talk. Jesus touched his tongue and the man started talking. There was a man that couldn't walk. Jesus reached down and grabbed him by his hand. The man started walking. There was a girl that was 12 that was dead. Jesus touched her and said, little girl, get up. The girl was raised from the dead. Matter of fact, I'll testify myself. I was shackled, 
by a heavy burden, beneath a load of guilt and shame, until the hand of Jesus touched me and he made me whole. Is there anybody here that know the power of Jesus? You got to bring your children to Jesus. I'm trying to show you the flow of the text. Here's what marriage is, but we didn't get it right. We're dealing with a broken home and broken children, but they come to be blessed. In verse 16, there's a young adult, there's a young man who's wealthy but has no life. He walks up to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? This is a young man, he's a young adult who's wealthy. He has listened to everybody telling him, if you want to be successful, get you a bunch of stuff, get you a bunch of things, get a bunch of possessions, get some money. And my man went out, he's rich, he's wealthy, no life. Because Jesus said that life does not consist in the abundance of things that people possess. There is no life outside of Jesus. And my man was young and wealthy, but he had no life because evidently when he was a child, nobody took him to Jesus. Had somebody taken him to Jesus when he was a child, he would not be dissatisfied by not having life when he's in a... Y'all act like you can get life without Jesus. You can't have life without Jesus. And my man had everything that wealth brings. He was a wealthy young man. He had a split-level home, 20,000 square feet out of the suburbs of Jerusalem. He had a summer home over in Egypt. He had a six-car garage with, with six luxury chariots in each of the garages. He had tailor-made clothes. He had custom shoes. This is, a, this is a wealthy man. He had portraits and prints throughout his house of the greatest artists of his day and time. He had all of that stuff, but you know what he did not have? He didn't have life. Y'all, there is no life without Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If somebody had taken him when he was a child, he wouldn't have been tripping as an adult because he didn't have life. And Jesus said, you want life? Jesus said, here's how you get life. I know you've been, you messed up marriage and dealing with brokenness and broken children, but here's how you get life if you're serious. Jesus told him, go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me. He looked at Jesus, turned his back, walked away because he chose money over the Messiah. He chose cash over Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. I thought you wanted life. Jesus said, if you want eternal life, sell out for me. Give to the poor. Come follow me. You know why he turned his back and walked away from Jesus? Because he thought it was going to be convenient Christianity. He didn't know I was going to have to sell out. He didn't know I was going to have to sacrifice and share. That's what Jesus told his disciples. If you're going to come after me, you got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Christianity is more than pushing a button three times on Sunday and sitting there for an hour. No, ain't no convenient Christianity. You got to sell out for Jesus, give to the poor, and then follow him. When that man walked away, and I got to rush this, that man walked away. Peter said, Jesus, he's walking away, but me and the disciples, uh, we, we sold out. We left everything for you. 
We left our homes. We left our houses. We left our, our fishing business. We, we left everything to follow you. Watch what Jesus said. Jesus said, anybody that makes that kind of sacrifice for me, I'm going to give them back 100 times what they gave me. Y'all, if, if you sell out and give to the poor, God ain't going to let you beat him giving. To give to the poor is like lending to the Lord. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a hundred times more of what you left. And then he's, he's talking about relationships. I'm going to give you healthy relationships. He's talking about resources that he's going to get. And I serve a God that supplies all of your needs according to your riches and glory. When you sell out for him, God has got you. But here's the one, and I'm done. Here's the one I want you to get. He said that when you sell out for me, you give to the poor, you follow me. Jesus said, I'm going to turn things around for you. There is going to be a reversal. I'm in verse 30 as I shut this down. In verse 30, he says, he says that I'm going to make the first last. And I know you've been through issues. I know you've had brokenness. I know you've had pain. I know there's been difficulty. You've been worrying about your children. But I want you to know I'm getting ready to turn it around. Because I'm going to make the last first. Oh, I wish I had a witness that no God can turn it around for. Okay. No, I, I, I'll close it like this. I'll close it like this. Um, my friend, Pastor Larry Rasco, and he pastors in Evansville. He gave me this, and he was talking about track and field. I, and I, he's a casual fan of track and field. I love track and field. I know it don't look like it now, but back in the day, I was actually a decent runner. And I ran the 400 meters. And that's why I love Allison Felix so much, the most decorated runner, uh, athlete in track and field in history, male or female. She went to the Olympics five times and medaled every time she went. The World Games. Matter of fact, she came out of retirement and won another medal in the World Games. <laughs> Allison Felix. And, and I, I like her because she was running the same event I ran, the 400 meters. She started with the 102 meters, but when she got older, she switched over to the 400 meter. That's one lap around the track. And when the race starts, it, it looks like that there are some runners that are starting from behind. So if you're in lane two, three, and four, it looks like the people in lanes five, six, seven, and eight, it looks like they're so far ahead of you from the beginning of the race. Then the race starts. And, and Allison Felix, you coming around that first turn, you can't tell because there are other world-class sprinters. And it's hard to tell on the second turn and the backstretch. But you can tell who's winning the race when it comes to the final turn and the home stretch. And, the reason, and you know she was always out front. And the reason why it looked like she was starting from behind is because the lanes are staggered. It's about perception. She wasn't starting from behind. Y'all, she was winning the race the whole time. It was just hard to tell because the lanes are staggered. But when she came around the last term, coming down the last stretch, everybody knew that the first had become last and the last had become first. When you sell out for Jesus, when you give to the poor, when you follow Jesus, sometimes it looks like you're behind. You are not behind. The first will be last. The last will be first. Do I have a witness in here? God will turn it around. It won't always be like this. 
God is perfecting that concerning you. Sooner or later, it'll work in your favor. He's turning it around for you. Can I get a witness here? I can see the breaking of day. God is making a way. There's a change coming for me. If I stand strong and believe, there is no reason to doubt. God is working it out. Do I have a witness here? He's turning around. Somebody give him glory. Somebody give him glory. He's working it out. He's turning around. The first will be last, but the last will be first. Somebody shout, yes. Come on, stand with me.